There were three expectant fathers that were sitting in the waiting room, eagerly anticipating the news of the delivery of their children. The nurse came in and grabbed the first father and said, It's great news, you're having twins. He stands up and he's just overjoyed. He said, I I can't believe it. it, it's so ironic. I used to play for the Minnesota Twins. So he gets the opportunity to go back and see his, his new uh, twin babies, and it's not long before the nurse comes back and, and gets the second father. And she says, this is just crazy, you're not going to believe this, but you are having triplets. And he stands up and he's overjoyed. He said, this is really crazy, but I work for the 3M company. And at this point, the, the third man, he, he gets very, very flushed, very white-faced, and it looks like he's about to faint. The nurse rushes over and she says, what's wrong? He says, I work for 7-Up. <laughs> Children are a great joy, and yet they also are the source of some of our greatest stresses. The, the comedian Jim Gaffigan s- describes the experience of, of having four children uh, like drowning. And then somebody hold, hands you a baby to hold. And I, I'm told that the, the stress doesn't get any easier over time. That you still spend a lot of time worrying and stressing about your children. And one of the greatest priorities that we have as as Christians for our children is that they become followers of Jesus. That they catch the the faith that we have and they they share the same kind of love and passion for God and for Jesus that, that we do. This morning is the last week of of our study called Our House. As we have begin to imagine our life as a house and each of the rooms in that house represents some significant relationships in your life. We started with the the marriage in the bedroom and last week we talked about the dining room and that's where all of the the people that are our family or who have become like family are gathered. This morning we're going to move to the kids room. And we're going to to, to spend some time thinking and wrestling with how do we pass our faith to our children? And let's not not make it sound more simple than it is. The Bible does not provide just a a, a, uh, 10-step plan. And there's no guarantees. In fact, God describes himself as a father to the nation of Israel and they consistently rebel. And so just because your children don't follow in, in, in your footsteps doesn't mean that you are a failure as a parent. But the Bible does offer us some best practices. And we're going to begin this morning with looking at the life of Jesus In Mark chapter 7, Jesus has spent some time in ministry already. And he's been healing, teaching a number of people, and has already started to gain the attention of the religious leaders. 
From time to time, Jesus has to to leave a certain location because of the the rising tensions. And in Mark chapter 7, verse 31, it says that then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and, and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. Now, as I read that, for most of us, the, the regions of Tyre and Sidon and the Decapolis, it doesn't mean a whole lot to us. Chances are you're not going to be able to locate those places on a map. But what is significant for us to notice about the regions that Mark mentions here is that they are on the other side of the tracks. They are outside of the territory of Israel. This is where the other people live. And it forces us to to ask the question, how is it that these people have already heard about Jesus? so that they are going to bring a man who cannot hear to him. And what's even more remarkable is it's not just an isolated incident here. It's not just just one, one group of friends or one family that has heard about Jesus. Just a few verses later in Mark chapter 8, verse 1, we're told that it's during those days another large crowd gathered. And it's about dinner time. They don't have anything to eat. And Mark doesn't leave it to our imagination to to guess how many people are there. He says that there were 4,000 that were gathered there. In a day and time when they only counted the men, so you're talking about a crowd of 10 to 15,000 people that have, have gathered to just catch a glimpse, just to hear a word, just to have Jesus touch them. How is it that they they know about Jesus in this territory? How is it that they have heard about the Messiah whenever they are not a a people that is expecting the Messiah? This is not a a day and time where they could have turned on their phones first thing in the morning and checked Facebook or Twitter to to catch the, the news that's going on all around the country. Whenever they went to the marketplaces, there was not a a newspaper stand with the National Holy Land Inquirer with headlines like, Boy Climbed Out of Coffin, Jesus Sighted Nearby. So how do they know to come to Jesus? To get the answer to that question, we need to go back a couple of chapters to Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus has gotten in a boat and gone across the Sea of Galilee. And as soon as they touch ground on the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee, verse 2 tells us that a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet Jesus. And the story that Mark is going to tell is one that will confirm every bias that the Jewish people have against those people. Of course this man has an impure spirit because that's what those people are like. 
They live out among the, the tombs. They live out in the, the, the dirty, filthy places. They are, are, are wicked, rebellious people. The, the story contains uh, a people that they have herds of, of pigs. An animal that, that is considered ceremonially unclean for the Jewish people. But instead of Jesus speaking condemnation on them or avoiding this group of people, or this man in particular, Jesus has a conversation with this man who has an impure spirit. And through that conversation, he is transformed. This man who was once described as being violent to the point that that people would try and chain him so that he wouldn't harm himself or harm other people. And yet he was somehow able to break those chains. His state of transformation is described as he's he's sitting and he's dressed in his right mind. That was an unusual occurrence for this man because he had gone insane. That's, that's how we would describe him. He, he never wore any clothes. And, and he was, you would not describe him as being in his right mind. The people, they see the transformation in this man and they are terrified. Because they've done everything in their power to try and, and control this man and they haven't been able to. And now, just with a word, Jesus demonstrates his power over that. So what kind of power does this man have? And they start to beg Jesus to leave the region. That's when we return to this man who has never given a name for us. He's just always known for who he used to be. The man who was possessed by a demon. Verse 18 says, as soon as Jesus was getting into the boat, the, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. This man is making a pledge of allegiance to Jesus. Whenever Mark says that, that he's begging to go with him, it's the same language that Mark will use to describe the disciples in Mark chapter 3 whenever Jesus calls 12 people and appoints them as apostles to be with him. This man is wanting to be a disciple. He's wanting to be a follower of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't allow him to go. And it's not a rejection of discipleship, though. It's a definition of discipleship. Just listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus didn't let him, verse 19, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. Jesus tells this man who had been possessed by a demon that following means going home. That 
To be a disciple means that you go home first. Too often we conjure up images of what it means to really be committed to Jesus. To really sell yourself out in following Jesus. In our culture, we, we have images of people that, that they give up their jobs, they leave their families behind, they go overseas, they go to another country in order to spread the gospel all over the world. But from the beginning, the primary vehicle of evangelism is the family. Whenever God created Adam and Eve and first expressed His desire to have the earth filled with people for Him to love and that loved Him, He told Adam and Eve how they were going to to accomplish it. He says, be fruitful, multiply. Get busy. This is not just this, this drudgery or this, this intimidating work of, of going across the world to talk to people. It is so much more exciting than that and at the same time so much less than that. That it's about going home. what we need to realize is that we can reach all of our neighbors. We can double, we can triple, we can quadruple the membership, the the attendance at this church. And we will still cease to exist within 50 years if we do not reach the next generation. This man who is been possessed by a demon, I'm sure that he had thousands of reasons not to go home. He was a violent man. Who do you think suffered the most that violence? What do you imagine the last words that he spoke to his father or his mother were? What about The man's wife. Or his brothers and sisters who who perhaps were there trying to chain him a number of those times to, to, to protect their own families. What about the shame that his children had to live with every single day as they would go to school and they would have to listen to all the jokes about his, their father who never wore any clothes? and lived out in the graveyard. See, going home, it's a a messy place. It's problematic. They know all of our mistakes. They know all of, of the times that we go off the handle. Because home is messy. My senior year of high school, I took a college psychology course at a technical school uh, there in, that was offered there in Duncan. And on the front couple of rows, there were a couple sets of, of mothers that were at completely different stages of life. There were uh, two 
mothers that had raised their children and had recently become empty nesters and they were going back to school, school to get a degree and, and to enter into the workforce with, uh, with their, their uh, new freedom of time. And then there were two young girls, young women that were about 18 to 19 and they had gotten pregnant while in high school. And they, as single mothers, trying to balance um, going to school and I'm sure working part-time and, and, and being new mothers, they would come with all kinds of questions of the, their current struggles with their children. And they would ask the professor who was a psychologist, uh, you know, their, their questions about their, their child not sleeping very well or, or their, their child being, being grumpy whenever they would get in the car. And it, it never seemed to matter what the question was that these young mothers came with. The empty nesters would start to whisper their answer. NyQuil. NyQuil. And I kind of got, got, started to get a little scared to see their, their grown children, what they turned out to be like. But their solution was an attempt to try and, and create a, an environment where the children were seen but not heard. And I think that that mirrors the approach that a number of churches and church members start to take towards children. We love to see children. We want to see a lot of children. We just don't want to hear anything from them. Because they are distracting. They, they, they create problems and they, they, they speak up whenever they should be quiet. And for a lot of us, we've already raised our children. And, and we're done. And so, so we start to think that, that this sermon has nothing to do with you. But what you need to hear is that the kids need me. They need you. They need all of us. Over the last decade or so, there's been a renewed focus in churches on Deuteronomy chapter 6 as God is forming the nation of Israel He gives instructions for how they are to live and he wants this to be a, a continual process that, that they pass their faith down to the next generation. And so he doesn't just tell them what to do, but he tells them how to do it. He, he says things like, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts and impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your, your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The way that God says to pass the faith down to the next generation is that you live your faith with your children. And what this means is that as parents, you are the, the primary, you bear the primary responsibility for being the spiritual leader in your family. This is not something that you can, you can pass off 
responsibility to a church or to uh, a set of ministers. Because you have advantages that no one else has. You have more time with your child than anyone else does. You have more authority with them than anyone else does. And God has given you that responsibility. But God doesn't expect you to do it alone. And you can't do it alone. See, too often whenever we we read Deuteronomy chapter 6, we skip over one of the most important parts of that passage. As in verse 4, God says, Hear or listen, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your, all your strength. And then He gets into these commands I give you today. This is the verse that Jesus quotes whenever He's asked what is the, the greatest commandment. He quotes this. What's known as the Shema. It was a prayer that, that, that every Jewish person would pray every single day. And it begins with the words, listen, hear, Israel. God isn't speaking just to the parents. He is speaking to the entire nation. In the Hebrew culture, terms like home or household or family was much more expansive than the way that we think about it. In the Hebrew culture, a household included not just parents and children, but it included the grandparents. It included the the, the brothers and sisters and their spouses and perhaps their children as well. A a household could be as, as many as 80 members. And that's who God is speaking to. The entire nation bears the responsibility to share their faith with the next generation. And what's fascinating is that current research is starting to discover what God said years ago, thousands of years ago, is true. For example, Kara Powell with uh, Fuller Theological Seminary has started to, to study what, what, what helps children maintain faith after they move out of their home. And she says that, that the closest she has come to discovering a silver bullet is whenever children participate in all church worship. Whenever they have a place at the table, whenever they are, 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 are given um, responsibilities, whenever they are, are made to feel like they can, can be at home in this room, and they don't have to just leave in order to hear about faith. David Kinneman with the, the Barna Group, a group that, that studies res, uh, does research into churches and, and cultural trends. So he looked at, at the millennial generation, a generation that has largely given up attendance at churches. He says in, in his summary, the, the first general observation that he makes is that intergenerational connections are vital. They are crucial in faith communities. 
That they don't just need to be isolated with their own age group, but they need to know other adults who are not their parents. Christian Smith with Notre Dame, after studying thousands of teenagers who were 13 to 17 when he started the study back in 2003 and he continues to follow them, he says this, Empirical evidence tells us that it does in fact matter for faith outcomes. Whether or not the participants in the study had non-parental adults in their religious congregation to whom they could turn for help and support. It matters whether or not they have participated in adult-taught religious education classes such as Sunday school, adult engagement with role modeling for and formation of youth simply matters a great deal for how they turn out after they leave the teenage years. I want to read that last statement again. Adult engagement with, role modeling for, and formation of youth simply matters a great deal for how they turn out after they leave the teenage years. Those of you that are parents, there, there will be a day, if it hasn't come already, where your child needs to talk to somebody, but they don't feel comfortable talking to you. And when that day comes, are they going to have somebody in their life that shares the same set of values that you do, the same faith, so that they can go to them and they will get an answer like you would give to them? It's our job, our responsibility as parents to to bring them into environments where they can form those kinds of relationships. That's why I stand up here every single week and encourage you to stay for Sunday class. Because you need it and your children need it. And for those of you that your children no longer live at home, our children need you. If this is the church that you consider to be your home, this is your people. Jesus would say to you, to be a disciple, to be a follower of me, you need to go home. And so some of you, you may need to get involved in our education program. Some of you, you need to to not just be satisfied with with recognizing somebody's face whenever they walk in the doors, but you need to learn their name. You need to start showing up to their sporting events or their band concerts, their birthday parties, because they need you in their lives. And more than that, you need them. You need the kids in your life. A few chapters later in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has a time where He's been teaching and the disciples see that some people are starting to bring their children to Jesus and they recognize that this is not the time nor the place for this. And so they start to, to try and very quietly dismiss the children, but Jesus sees this going on and Mark tells us that Jesus is indignant that he is angry, he's furious over what is taking place. 
And he's upset for two reasons. First, he says that these people, these children, they have access to the kingdom of God just as much as you do. But secondly, he says, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Time has a way of hardening us. We tend to become more skeptical and pessimistic as we go through life. And as we start to lose more and more of our network of relationship, our family and our friends, we start to reach a stage where where all we have to look forward to is death. But we need kids in our lives to remind us of what it means to dream and to hope. You need kids in your life to remind you of what it means to to take a risk and not just to, to always make the safe choice. You need children in your life to remind you of the simplicity of faith. Because life is never ideal, but it's always real. This American Life talk show host uh, Ira Glass interviewed a filmmaker named Alan uh, Berliner. He spent six years collecting home movies from various garage sales and estate sales. And after viewing all of those films, he, he observed that we tend to film uh, rites of passages like birthdays or weddings or moments of leisure. And, and the beach was, was extraordinarily popular. And he made the observation that our home movies tend to show our lives the way that we want them to be, not necessarily the way that they are. One of the things that I love about the story of the man who was possessed by a demon is that he had a real family. He had a real life that that was full of chaos. And Jesus did not allow him to escape life as it is, but told him that he had to go home. And the man's obedience demonstrated his devotion to God more than getting in the boat did. And the result of that was the transformation of thousands of lives. Thousands of people were ready whenever Jesus came into the area that they were expecting Him. They were looking for Him. And they perhaps experienced the transformation as well. Transformation that Jesus still offers. It is found in Christ alone. Nowhere else. And as we close this morning, I want to ask you if you've had that transformation. For some of, for some of us here, the, the call for us this morning is to come to Jesus and experience that, in, that, that transformation. 
And for some of us, the call for us is to evaluate whether or not we really have experienced the transformation enough to go home. We're going to sing a song of invitation. Some of our shepherds will be at the, the back of the worship center. I'll be at the front. If there's some way that we can help you, why don't you come as we stand and worship together?